Good morning. Everybody doing all right today? Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. This morning, we get to finish up the second chapter of Colossians. And then I'm really excited because in chapter 3 and 4, it really gets very, very practical with what we have to deal with from what we've learned so far. There's a guy, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. For about 40 years, he's been doing something unusual. Since 1973, a guy by the name of Amar Bharti of India has kept his right hand raised up above his body. 40 years of doing this. He's done it so long that his fingers, just try it, during the whole sermon, raise your hand up like this. No, no, you don't have to, I'm kidding. Um, You know, it'd be hard, wouldn't it? But, I mean, his, his fingers are now withered, his knuckles are kind of rotting and things like that. In fact, his arm basically, after doing this for 40 years, is stuck this way. He did it for a reason, and the reason that Amar did this was he wanted to have a gesture of devotion to a Hindu god by the name of Shiva. So for 40 years, this guy has practically rendered himself incapable of doing almost anything practical in life, in order to show devotion to a Hindu god. The reason I bring that up is because this morning in our passage, we come to another ism that ought to be a wasm, that is the idea of doing things in order to earn favor, and particularly things that, are, uh, that cost you, that uh, make your life uncomfortable, that really cause you not to, to live a normal life, uh, in order to earn favor with God, in order to get his uh, a favor placed upon you. We've looked so far at uh, intellectualism, which is worldly philosophy, and that's advocating that human thinking ought to be elevated above Christ. And then we looked at ritualism, which is uh, the idea of elevating observation of rules and rituals above Christ. We looked at mysticism, which is elevating experience above Christ and his word. And now what we're going to look at, and this is a nice big word for you, it's asceticism, okay? And this is the idea that I have to add to Christ other things of my own doing to complete what he's up to. Asceticism really uh, is the religious philosophy which teaches that you deprive your physical body of its normal desires as a means of achieving greater holiness and approval from God. It's really the idea of living a vigorous life of self-denial, thinking of things like poverty as a means to spirituality. Now, let me ask you a question. Does the Bible tell you to deny self? It does, doesn't it? So what we're not talking, it's just like there are rules in the Bible too, right? Uh, So, you know, things that the Word of God describes to us are not the kind of things I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is manufacturing a system that... uh, has the effect of thinking it is making you more spiritual from the external perspective rather than from an internal transformation. Okay, you tracking with me? I know it's kind of complicated at this point, but we're going to flesh this out. But it's it's this idea that my self-denial achieves greater holiness and really greater favor from God. And it's basically what you're doing is you're interpreting the Christian life on the basis of things that you do not do. So Christianity becomes really a list of don'ts. And the idea of a Christian doing without certain things is not in itself bad, like I talked about here. There are don'ts in the Bible, right? Uh, Don't 
kill, right? Don't steal. There are a lot of don'ts in the Bible. I'm not really, I'm not talking about those, but uh, when we are defined by our don'ts and what we do with that as a means to our holiness, this is the issue of asceticism, okay? And a key question that might help to open this up in your own mind and say, how does this play into my life that you might want to ask is, do I judge uh, myself or do I judge others on the basis of rules that I've concocted to be equivalent with holiness? And, and if you have a structure like that, and you're not talking about Bible, the things that the Bible has outlined specifically for us, you might be, uh, it might be an indicator that you have some ascetic tendencies. For example, I grew up in Texas, and in Texas... You know, we had an old saying that used to be in the Baptist circles that I grew up in. It was like, you don't smoke, don't dance, don't chew, and don't run with those who do. Okay? I mean, it makes, it's, it's, it's pithy, all right? But, uh, you know, and I'm not arguing the merits of should you smoke or should you chew or run with those who do. I'm not talking about that right now. We can do that on another time. But basically that became kind of a mantra that described what Christianity was, look like, was to look like. And again, I'm not discussing the validity of those decisions, but what I am talking about is creating standards, laws, prohibition, that are used to uh, make not only yourself holier, but are used to impress upon other people as a standard of holiness. And it's really the twin sister of legalism. It's the opposite, by the way, of licentiousness, right? Licentiousness says you can do whatever you want, okay? Uh, legalism is, is way over here, and you can't hardly do anything. We got all the rules, right? Asceticism is kind of like that. Uh, licentiousness is on the other side where it's like, just let go, let God do everything you want. If it feels good, do it, right? It's kind of the world's philosophy. And what people tend to do in their spiritual walk is they tend to swing that pendulum from one end to the other. You get people who've come out of legalism, a lot of times what they don't do is come to the biblical position, but rather they swing all the way out to the licentious position because they're nervous about this one so much that they want to get as far away from it as is possible. There are times in, in the lives of believers where we may look aesthetic, all right? For example, if you're a missionary going to a third world country, you're going to be doing without some stuff, right? And it's natural. If you're a, going to seminary, the good ch there's a good chance that you're going to uh, not have things that other people have, and you're going to have to live maybe a, a, even a poverty type of lifestyle for a, a while, right? I'm not talking about the fact that you find yourself in that position. I'm talking about the fact that you look at that and say, because of that, I, am, I have more favor with God than somebody who's in a different camp than that. Are you tracking with me so far? If you are, give me that. Not, most of you are. Okay, good, good. Now, there are times when, when our lives look like that. Uh, sacrificial giving, right? I mean, how great is it when somebody has, has the means, right, and then sees a need and fills it and does without themselves. That's awesome. But it's not to earn favor with God. It's because you care, because you love like Christ loved that you're doing it. You see the difference? It's a fine line, and it's something that uh, you get back to at the level of motive, really, as you try to analyze it in your own life. And there's a proper place for those things, and there's a proper place, of course, for self-discipline and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. But when, you, when it becomes a badge of honor, a source of pride, and a source of a means of obtaining holiness in your own eyes, that's when it becomes bad. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making here in our passage is that your union with Christ has set you free from rules and decrees and man-made ordinances, and, and instead life now is to be lived in the Spirit with a heart of gratitude and an obedience that follows him as a result of an inward transformation. 
It's from the inside out, not the outside in, okay? You remember the story in John of, of Lazarus, right? Ja- Lazarus dies. Mary, Martha, the whole gang is like, oh, you know, we sent for Jesus, and then he died. Jesus didn't come. When Jesus finally gets there, he waits four days for a real distinct purpose. When he finally gets there, he says, they say to him, if you'd have been here, it wouldn't have happened. And you remember the scene of Jesus standing outside Lazarus' graves. He's been buried now, right, for four days. He's He's standing outside Lazarus' grave. And what does Jesus do? Do you remember? This is the memory verse of every child on earth. When you have to do it for VBS or something like that, and you have to say a verse or a camp or something, this is the one. What is it? John what? 11 what? You know what it is. Don't lie to me. This is church. Now, Jesus wept, right? i got to say a verse. Jesus wept. Got it. Well, Jesus stands outside. It's a real, you see his humanity in this. He's standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He sees the effect of sin upon not only Lazarus, but the people around and all the pain and all that kind of stuff. And because of that, I believe that's the reason why Jesus wept. Because Jesus didn't weep because, oh no, this is hopeless. Because guess what he's about to do? And guess what? He knows what he's about to do, right? He's not going, oh, I wish I could have done something. I wish I'd have been here early. He's going, I hate sin. I hate sin's effect. I hate that the wages of sin is death, and I hate the, the implications that it has for so many people, but it is just, and it's what it has to be, and this is pain, and it's because of the fall, and it's because of mankind's selfish, depraved ways. And Jesus weeps. And then Jesus does that thing that is absolutely extraordinary and amazing that you can't do and I can't do, and nobody else can do. He speaks to Lazarus. I mean, we can do that but he calls him out of the grave. Remember that? Lazarus, come forth. Boom! And what happens? You can go out to the cemetery nearby here. All you want, go, uh, Bill Smith, come forth. Uh, Jerry Bridges, come forth. It it doesn't matter, right? Nobody's coming forth. Jesus stands at a grave, and the reason he said Lazarus, I believe, is because if he just said come forth, everybody would have come on out, right? And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus does what? He comes forth. He says, unbind him, take those grave clothes off of him, and, and get him clothed and back in the game. How silly would it have been if he came back two weeks later to that grave, Lazarus get grave, and, and you're walking through there and you look over and you go, what? and you'd notice that Lazarus is back in that grave. He's alive, but he's just sitting in the grave and he's pulling his grave clothes back on and all that kind of stuff, you know, trying to bind himself. How silly would that look? Lazarus, you've been released. You've been set free. You, we would think the guy was just really pretty much bonkers, Right? Okay, there's your picture. What our passage is going to tell you is you've been set free. All right? You've died to that. And you don't have to live like that anymore. So my message today is about getting out of the grave. Okay, let's quit going back to the grave that we came from. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and all that kind of stuff. And let's get out of it and live the Christian life the way that God designed the Christian life to be uh, lived because that's the best place. Right? Let's read our passage. You have your Bibles? Have them open, check this out. If you have died with Christ, this is uh, Colossians 2, starting in verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters to be sure which have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. 
So what, what Paul does here is he sets a contrast in place. He's going to talk about the foolishness of asceticism. And he's talking about it in contrast to the, the rich, vibrant life that is the Christian life. And, and, he, and he turns and he talks about it in terms of a focus. And we're going to work through this. Now, the key to avoiding this mistake is to know your spiritual condition and your believer. That's what we've got written down in your outline there. And, and it's, it's as simple as this. You are not dead, so don't act like it. All right? Get out of the grave. Okay? Look at first one. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, stop there. And this tells you why, why asceticism right to the beginning is foolish because it ignores the fact that the believer has died with Christ. You say, well, it says if there. No, let me explain that to you because in the Greek that's, that word that's translated if in the Bible is what they call a first-class condition. What that means, it's, it's true, okay? It's assumed true, okay? So it, it really, it could be better translated since, okay? So since you have died with Christ to these things, you have, and the point is, you've been separated from the elementary principles of the world. And we saw those elementary, we talked about those in a little bit more detail back in verse 8, if you remember that. And it just talks about a basic series or the way the world kind of moves, thinks, operates. He says, you're not like that anymore. You're dead to that. You know, you died with Christ. Okay. When did you, you remember Galatians 2.20, right? I have been what? Crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Isn't that beautiful? I've been crucified. When Christ was crucified, guess what? My he was crucified in my behalf even then. I was crucified with him. And by the way, and you're going to see this next time in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, you're not left dead, okay? It's not, you're dead, just period. But it then says, you know, if you've been raised up with Christ, same thing, first class conditional, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God. It's a beautiful passage. I can't wait for it next time. But the point is, you're dead to the old ways. That's what he starts off with. You're dead to that elementary principles. You're dead to the old stuff. Don't act like that anymore. Have you ever noticed how a dead person, laws don't apply to a dead person? You ever notice that? When was the last time you saw a dead person getting a speeding ticket? Anybody? I mean, you don't. I won't go to that story. Anyway, you just don't see it. You can go down to so-and-so's mortuary down the street here, and you can go in there with... Uh, uh, a bottle of whiskey, a pack of cigarettes, whatever drug the person might like in their life, and you can offer this stuff to them. You can go in with pornography and wave it in front of their face. Not one of them is going to go, oh, that's really tempting me right now, because what? They're dead to this world, okay? As Christians, what happens, we have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. We're dead to that. And so asceticism is silly because what it is is saying, even though I've died like that, I'm going to grab back. I'm going to be like Lazarus and go back to the old ways. It doesn't work that way. Asceticism is also foolish because it uh, inhabits a, a false reality that, that is that it, it um, forces believers to continue in a realm of a world system to which they've died under decrees. Okay, and that's the point there. Paul says, why are you doing that, right? If Jesus Christ delivered you from one prison... Why do you try to go back to a prison? He says, why do you, look at verse 20. Why do you submit yourself to decrees? That's the Greek word there is dogma, all right? That's the root word of it. Um, if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 14, where it talked about how Jesus, in his death on the cross, canceled the certificate of debt consisting of the decree, same word coming from dogma there. 
says, if, if you've been set free from that, why do you submit to it? By the way, the verb there of submission is not past tense. Why did you submit to it? It's why are you submitting to that now? That's not for you anymore. The, pro- the process isn't complete in your life yet, so quit doing that. Why are, why are we doing that when we do that? And it's a huge temptation in the Christian walk. It really is. Because as you become more spiritual, when you have that relationship with Christ, if you're not careful, the things that are, you're finding that the Spirit is impressing in your own life, there may be things that you don't do that somebody else can do, right? But it's an area where you might stumble so you don't do it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, you, you're tempted when, while that's not wrong for you not to do this or that, because it's an area that would cause you to stumble, you're tempted then to press that upon somebody else where it wouldn't be that way for them. And you make rules that aren't necessarily scriptural rules, okay? And religious history is full of people adding to the rules of the Christian life. I'm telling you, there are guys all through history, if you read church history or any kind of religious history, guys who are walking around in in hair shirts and sleeping on hard beds and going for days with all kinds of uh, do-without kind of things that just almost seem ridiculous. Some of these folks wouldn't even care for their own bodies. I mean, some of them wouldn't even bathe. I think we might have a few of those in here today. No. There's one guy I remember reading about. He, he, kept him, he didn't clean himself, so he would, got so bad that he would walk around, and they said that as they watched him walk around, every step he took, lice would fall off his body. Right? You see it a lot in monasticism. Anthony, the founder of Christian monasticism, never changed his shirt. He never washed his feet. He used to hang out at cemeteries because it made him more spiritually thought. He was outdone by a guy by the name of Simeon Stylites or Simon Stylites, uh, who for the last 36 years of his life, he stood on top of a 50-foot-tall pillar in the middle of the desert because he thought that the path to spirituality was exposing his body to the elements and withdrawing from the world. St. Asepsimus, he had so many chains that he attached to his body as a sign of his spirituality, literal chains, that he couldn't even stand up and he would crawl everywhere he went and the chains would, you know, drag along with him. Bessarian, he wouldn't lie down when he was asleep because he thought that made him more spiritual. Forty years, the man never laid down to sleep. He always slept standing up. Macarius sat naked in a swamp for six months and he got so mosquito-bitten trying to earn favor with God that he looked like a leper, they say. The monks in West Mahel, um, they took a vow of perpetual silence. They dressed in rough sackcloths. They'd only eat bread and get this sour milk and vegetables. And here's the kicker. Every day, the, the, the one thing the monk always did was he'd go out into the garden. That sounds pretty good so far. And they had a grave dug there, and he'd look at the grave and wonder which one's next. It was going to be me today. So is this kind of thing, just be, what does it have to do with spirituality? Somebody tell me. It doesn't, right? This is just somebody saying, you know, look what I'm giving up for God. Look what I'm adding to the equation is really the bottom line. And it's a messed up deal. It, it's not just uh, in those olden days and things like that. I read of a guy by the name of Lotan Baba. He's an Indian holy man who rolled like on his side, on the, on his, just down the street, you know, like lay down and roll. He rolled for 2,485 miles, 973 yards. He averaged six to seven miles a day. One day he even went 13 miles just rolling. First holy roller, I guess. And the reason, the purpose of his journey was to pay homage to 
to the goddess Vishnayadari to achieve praise or peace and unity for India. And, and during these roles, that's all he did. This was to achieve peace, to get her favor so that India could have peace. Didn't apparently work. He only took breaks, you know, have a sip of water, you know, eat a little bit of bread maybe and smoke the occasional cigarette. His body was so covered in blisters after com completing the journey that he could barely even operate physically. Trying to earn favor again with God. In the Roman Catholic Church, you see it with vows of poverty, celibacy, the period of Lent. Uh, you see it in evangelical circles, even with people setting rules. You know, you don't play cards, you don't go to movies, whatever it is. And then they take a lot of pride in that. Like, I don't go to these things, you shouldn't either, you know. I'm not saying you should go to a movie. I'm not talking about the right or wrong of any of these kind of things. What I'm talking about is it becomes that litmus test that says, I'm spiritual, you're not. And God's more favored with me because look at what I'm doing, what I'm giving up for him. There are even those in certain circles that believe that if you had any money, uh, that you're, you're probably not a very spiritual person. That goes against the word of God, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have to look too far to that. Abraham was exceedingly rich. Remember Job? Job had all kinds of stuff. But the difference, see, you know, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil, Right? And so it's about possessions or about who possesses them, right? Do I possess my possessions or do my possessions possess me? And so like Job, for example, when he started losing all his possessions, the camels and the houses, everything, the kids, uh, his, what was his reaction? Do you remember? He said, the Lord what? Gives, gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Abram had all kinds, he had so much stuff that at one point him and Lot had to separate. Do you remember that? You take whatever land you want. That wasn't a guy who was possessed by his possessions. That was a guy saying, you know what? I don't really care about the possessions. God's blessed me with them. Lot, why don't you choose? And that's all of his life, even down to his own son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. He was willing to offer up on Mount Moriah if that's what God wanted. It, it didn't own him. So poverty is, is not a, a badge of courage. Uh, in fact, you know, the Beatitudes don't say blessed are the poor. What do they say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Humility. And, and it's the willingness to, to not be the one who is the holder, the possessor, the prideful one. And the attitude that we should have, folks, when it comes to money, just as a side note, is 1 Corinthians 4, 7, that says, what do you have that you did not receive? Right? If I'm going to boast, what am I going to boast in? I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ. And that's it. So some, some people out there, all of a sudden, they come up with all these rules. Don't do certain things. And if they're not biblical don'ts, like don't kill and all that kind of stuff, then it becomes very aesthetic, okay? So you can go through Christians, and you see rules about pool playing, card playing, bowling. In Finland, did you know that a good Christian is not supposed to whistle? Whistle. That, you know, it's just crazy stuff people are making up. Some, some circles, they say, you're, gals, you should never wear makeup. All right? Well, if you wear makeup, you're just you're, you're a harlot and you're trying to attract the men. You know, and I always believe that a, an old barn needs a little paint every now and then, so I don't have a problem with makeup, just so you know. The problem with all these things I'm describing is that it interprets Christianity on the basis of the things that you do not do. Salvation by grace is not enough. 
The Holy Spirit is not enough to live the Christian life. Instead, the Christian is to live his life by external controls. And the result is it puts the Christian back into bondage after being released. And folks, get out of the grave, right? We don't go back to prison. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, Are you so foolish, Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see what he's saying, right? It's just the same thing we saw back in Colossians 2, verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, and that way, by grace through faith, right? So walk in him. Walk the life by his grace, through faith, according with the with what he's told you in the word of God. These degrees, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They put the focus all on the negative and not the positive, right? For some reason, if you're, if you're carrying the King James, it's reverse those, do not touch, do not uh, taste, do not handle. Uh, that, I don't know why they did that. That's really not the, the order it should be in. But uh, Paul is driving home the point that all these don'ts that are kind of added to the equation, and, and a lot of people believe this has to do with dietary regulations and things, food laws that were such an issue back then. Um, the, the focus is, is back on the negative. I, I define who I am in Christ by what I do not do. By the way, those, those decrees that he listed there, they, they follow a, a, an order with most, for most interaction to the least with the item. So you can see kind of the way the argument is made. Don't handle that, right? No, okay, you've gotten over handling it? Good. Let me add another rule to you. Don't taste it, right? Just a little bit. And then past that, don't even touch it would be a way you could translate that. Don't handle, don't taste, don't even touch. You see all the, the, the rules being placed into place there to try to define your Christianity by what you do. By the way, this is a tendency of most people. It's a real struggle for most people. Because we want to have that checklist that says, I'm doing this thing right. Instead of living in according to what God's word says and, and, and by the spirit. And so what the tendency is for most people is to set up the list of don'ts that define a good Christian. Back to my old days, don't dance, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang with those who do. I'm telling you what, there's a problem with that though, isn't there? I mean, that chair over there, right around the corner there, you see that blue chair? That blue chair, according to that definition of a Christian, is an excellent Christian. Because it doesn't smoke. It doesn't chew, and it doesn't hang around with those who do, unless, well, I guess somebody could sit in it, right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. You're not going to go to hell because you dip, dip snuff, okay, right? That's, you're going to go to hell because you're a sinner, okay? You're not going to go to heaven because you don't dip snuff or smoke or whatever else you want to add to the equation. You're going to go to hell, heaven because of the grace of God. You can be, you cannot do all those stuff, still go to hell, and be the nicest smelling person in hell. The only way we are saved, the only way we walk the Christian walk is because Jesus Christ saved us by his grace and we have been born again into the family of God. We have the spirit that indwells us and we follow him from the inside out. Get out of the grave. And Paul really takes this now, and point number two in your outline, is he really does this comparison now between asceticism and true Christianity. And he's really, it's all about focus. I hope you notice this in here. See, what asceticism does and why it's foolish is because it, it focuses on the, the passing versus the lasting. Look at verse 22. He talks about all these things. He says, they're all destined to perish 
with the using. This stuff doesn't last. It's temporal. It's not, it's not eternal. Focus is the key to the Christian life, by the way. I, I hope you come back next week because as soon as we hit chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it's all about focus at that point. Okay? So do that and bring a friend, all right? And Paul, again, the example of food's probably in view here. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with them both, right? So this passing versus lasting, where Christianity is, 1 Peter 1, 4, says that we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. We're talking about a different set of structures and values in the Christian life. We're no longer focused on that which is passing as the, the critical aspect of our walk, but we are looking at the things that are beyond that. We are not citizens of this place. We are citizens of another place, and we look to the kingdom, the holy city that is to come, right? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't drive a car or have a job or have families and go to ball games and all that kind of stuff, right? We live here, but those things aren't the biggest things in our life. They're not the most important things. We, our focus is to be about Christ. And you know what? I, I'm a big Texas A&M football fan, all right? Yesterday we played Alabama and we lost. There was a time in my life where that would have ruined me for a couple of days. Did Purdue end up winning? No, they ended up losing, didn't they? I really wanted them to beat Notre Dame. I've got a guy I work with that I don't need him in my face Monday. Good job, UCLA. Even USC. And you know what? Those are fun things. I enjoy it. But what a great opportunity to get together with people, to, to interact and have fun, talk about it, build relationships, all that kind of stuff in view of a relationship that you can talk to them about important stuff. More important than Aggies and Bruins and Trojans and Boilermakers. Right? See, the, the ascetic person is only about the externals. I gotta, you know, it's about, I've got to stand on this post. I've got to wear the hair shirt or I can't do this. And it becomes this strange activity that your whole life is driven by an external set of rules instead of an internal transformation. Let me ask you this. Which would you rather uh, hug? A, a, a warm, this is the choice, a warm, fuzzy puppy. Got it? Or a lobster, which you just want to snuggle with it in bed one night. Which one? Anybody for the lobster? Keep your hands down. I know you're just one of those rebels. All right. What's the difference between a warm, fuzzy puppy and a lobster? Well, smells and things aside. The difference is the lobster has what's called an exoskeleton, right? In other words, all its structures on the outside. That warm, fuzzy puppy on the outside has soft flesh and you know, floppy ears and fur usually, and things like that, right? Why? Because it has an endoskeleton, right? The skeleton's on the inside. It's like that in Christianity. I mean, have you seen Christians with an exoskeleton? All their rules are on the outside? That's the ascetic here. Those guys are absolutely no fun to be around, and they don't really help you to grow usually. They usually just make you feel bad about everything, and, and you feel like you can't get anywhere anytime, and you know, everything's wrong. But if you have that structure on the inside, the Word of God, uh, understood and applied by the Holy Spirit of God, how much more of a welcoming kind of relationship is that as you interact with a watching world around you, right? So we've we got to stop being lobsters and, and start being warm, fuzzy puppies, I think is the bottom line. 
Now, there are many things that Christians should do and shouldn't do, but it's not because of rules that we've set up, but it's because of internal transformation that's happened because of our relationship when we got saved, okay? So you're moving from a, a passing versus lasting and, and, a, and an earthly versus heavenly perspective to a, to a heavenly perspective. Asceticism is also kind of silly because it also has to do with that outward regulation versus that inward transformation. You know, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I know I haven't been here a long time, but I want you, I need to confess something to you right now, okay? Every Saturday night that I want to, I go out and get as drunk as Foster Brooks. You got very nervous just then, didn't you? Let me tell you, I don't go and do that because I don't want to. See the difference? I could, I could go, and I shouldn't get drunk because the Bible says not to get drunk, but I could go and have, theoretically have a drink or something like that, couldn't I? But you know what? There's no, there's no interest in that. Right? Why would I want to do that? Is that the best use of my money as a steward? Do I want something that controls me rather than the Spirit of God who controls me? I'm not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? You see the point? It's not because of a set of rules, don't go do this, typically. It's because of an internal change. There's not a desire to go and do that. Unless you walk, have moments where you're walking by the flesh and things like that. Asceticism does it from the outside, and it, and it may look very spiritual. In fact, our verses even say that. Look at verse 23. It says, they have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. And look before that, he says, to be sure it has this. I mean, so what Paul's saying, it really looks spiritual. To be sure, it looks spiritual. But that's not the deal. And you look and you say, wow, they're so deep and committed. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're giving up. And they do that by self-abasement, verse 23, right? That's false humility. Where you're kind of like, you know, and that people always tell them what they don't do. You know what I'm saying? Keeping rules, by the way, tends to puff up. Look at me, I'm sprouting wings, right? You know, some Christians don't grow, they swell. The other one that says there is severe treatment of the body, self-denial. These things look good, and they're even uh, tied in at times to truth from the Bible. But then they're twisted just, to, just enough, right? Isn't that what Satan does? I mean, sex is a beautiful thing, but then he twists it and makes it something really bad. And the way he designs it in this worldview, right? Self-denial is a positive thing. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. But when it becomes a source of pride, look at what I'm giving up, folks, up on the 50-foot pillar. There's a problem, right? And the problem is it's, it's not from a relationship. It's from outward regulation. And look at what he says at the end of verse 23. He says it is of no, no value against fleshly indulgence. And what's the point there? You can take somebody who's filled with lust. And you can take them out to a desert, and you can put them in a cave in a hair shirt, and guess what you got? You got somebody who's fighting lust in his head in a cave in the desert, because that didn't change a thing. But you take a, a sinner that's full of lust, and when the Lord transforms his life inwardly, right, when he encounters the gospel, you begin to see change, right? You see battles being won. You see... Uh, his life transformed. 
You see, and note this carefully, okay? Christianity is not being inhibited by rules, right? But it's being inhabited by a ruler. You see the difference? Christianity is not a set of rules. I'm just going to, oh, there's, there's a rule. I can't do that and grip my teeth and go with it. We're not being inhibited by rules, but we're being inhabited by the ruler. Who, a ruler has sovereignty, right? A ruler has certain sets of rules that he's outlined for us in his word of God, and we live by those from the inside out. External rules cannot change a person's heart. You know, it's interesting whenever somebody comes to know Christ and you see a new believer come to a church. And the tendency a lot of times for us in the church is to start ruling them up, you know what I mean? Well, what's this Christian life look like? Well, let me give you some rules. If we're not careful, right? Well, you need to stop that. I remember back in the 70s, uh, the hippie movement. All the hippies were getting saved, right? And the first thing most of the churches were doing was like, you need to cut your hair now. What does that have to do with anything, right? They would tell people to cut their hair while they were unwilling to cut their gossiping tongues, right? So you get a new Christian that comes to church, and if we're not careful, we start to say, okay, you're not supposed to be this way, not supposed to be that way, with our own rules even. The other thing you see when a new Christian comes to church, and I love this part of it, is, you know, even though there's lots of things wrong with them, and there's things that just like the rest of us, that we're all working through, right? But you take that new believer with the passion and the the freshness of loving who Christ is and realizing, hey, I've been forgiven and I don't deserve this and the grace and all that kind of stuff, instead of people who've been like that for 40 years and forgotten that they're sinners almost, right? And you take a guy like that and you set him underneath good, solid, biblical teaching and and help him to learn to personally study the Word of God for themselves and you watch that, and you'll see stuff's changing. And you'll see stuff falling away. And you'll see them starting to live differently. Not because of an external rule list, but because of the work of God working on the heart. Why do we want to try to take what God's design is, and that is to work on the heart from the inside out, and change it? And I think people think, well, well let's improve on this. Right? We're going to improve on what God's idea is by coming up with new lists of things that he maybe forgot to put in the Bible. I'm glad I'm here to help you, God, get these other things out there because you didn't know enough to put it in the Bible. Why trade the complete work of the cross for man-made bondage? Why stay in the grave? The great biblical commentator Alexander McLaren wrote this, Any asceticism is a great deal more to man's taste than abandoning self. You see, there's a difference between abandoning self and just abandoning the stuff attached to self. The world likes the rules better. He says they would rather stick hooks in their backs and do the, whatever this is, the swinging puja, than give up their sins and yield their wills to God. There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ, ascetic Religion is godless, for its practitioners essentially worship themselves. And with that, Paul closes chapter 2. And he's come to the end of basically the theology section of the book. And he's made a point that I hope is clear to everybody who's been here, right? In Christ, you're complete. 
His work is complete. You have been made complete. Chapter 2, verse 10. And as you received him now, you walk in the same way. Chapter 2, verse 6. You've been saved by grace. Now you live by grace. And what Christ does is sufficient. We don't need to add to it rules. We don't need to add to it uh, philosophies. We don't need to add to it anything else because Christ is sufficient. And what he's done is sufficient. And so now you have been given, if you're in Christ, you have been given the whole package within you. There's nothing lacking, no second uh, experience or anything like that that has to happen. You have everything you need to live for Christ and everything that you will face. He has given you his grace. He has given you direction. He has given you empowering of the Holy Spirit. He has given you his word to guide you. This is cool, folks. Because we don't have to go find anything else, we have it. There's nothing we need to add to Christ. He's the all-sufficient, preeminent one. Okay? Now then, and that's the theology of chapters 1 and 2. Now then, how does that affect my life? How does it affect me personally? What should that look like? How does that affect my closest relationships, like my relationship to my wife? What does that look like, or my children? How does it affect my job? If I'm an employer... How am I supposed to be? If I'm an employee, what's that supposed to look like? How does it affect even my neighbors and people I don't even know, this watching world around me that I interact with all the time? How does that play out? That's what chapters 3 and 4 are all about. That's why it starts with, you know, sense. Now, therefore, hey, guess what? You know the theology. You don't need anything else. Now, here's what it looks like. Consider yourself dead to these things and move forward so that you can have the greatest impact possible for the kingdom of God during your time here on earth so that you may impact your generation for the glory of God. How cool is that? I love the obituary that God writes about David in Acts chapter 13 where he says, David, having served God's purposes in his generation, fell asleep. Isn't that great? That's what you're here for, Christian. You're going to serve God's purposes as you seek to follow what he has in his book in your generation. And then when that's done, guess what? Betty time. Betty by time, right? You fall asleep, which means die, right? Or rapture, whatever you want to go with that. At this point, you know, you die and it's done. Or he brings you home and it's done. And that's not sad because that's fullness, that's glorification, That's completeness. It's all done, done, and realized. So the theology section's done. And from here on, every time the Lord gives us, we're going to be working through, how does that play out now? And he starts with concentric circles, with the one that's most important that you're dealing with, and that's yourself. And then he moves out from there, like a pebble hitting a, a, a glassy pond surface, and the circle's moving away. It's yourself. your your closest relationships all the way out to just everybody and everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word, and we thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you that we do not serve a Christ who is uh, lacking or insufficient. We do thank you that your word is also sufficient, that we don't need to add to it or subtract from it, that you've given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through a knowledge of Jesus Christ that you've given us your spirit to carry out the things that you've called us to do, that you've laid it out there for us, Lord. You've even written it down and you've reminded us time and time again. And you've given us a body to help us along the path. And so, Father, we just, we thank you for that. 
But Lord, may we live well, excel still more, and honor you with each breath that we have so that we may serve your purposes in our generation until the time that you call us home. In Christ's name, amen.